Fargo Season 2, Episode 5, The Gift of the Magi, is over. But we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. I'm Josh Wiggler. And boy, would you look at what I got here. I got a I got a box in the mail today. It's kind of heavy. It's probably about 8 pounds. That feels like the size of a bowling ball and or a human head. Let's open it up. And oh, look, it's Antonio Mazzaro inside. Well, hello. How do you like my hair? Oh, I was hoping for Gwyneth Paltrow. Ah, what's in the box, Josh? What's in the box? But we've got another box here. Let's open this up. Let's see. Maybe this will be Gwenny Paltrow's. And oh, no, it's Ronald Reagan instead. Hey, everybody. It's me, Ronald Reagan, your former president. How's it going, everybody? Oh, my God. Can you guys believe that we secured the services of Ronald Reagan's head from the future of Futurama into this podcast instead of Jeremiah Panhorse tonight? How about that? I thought it might have been Ronald Reagan's ghost. How about that? How about that for production value? It's fantastic. It's pretty good. Well, we're all Americans, and I think Americans can do just about anything they want. So I decided to podcast. Oh my God! Well, we're we're so happy to have you here, Ronnie. Ronnie, can I call you Jeremiah? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and can oh, you, man. can you, can, Ronald? Can you do your Jeremiah Panhorst impression? I'll give it a try. All right, let's hear it. Hey, everybody. Oh, it's pretty good. <laughs> I thought that was Dr. Nick. This is great. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Nick. Can, who Hi, knew Jeremiah. That, I never knew that Ronald Reagan could do me so well. Yeah, oh, this man. Is really he did, good. He did you great. He did you great. He is an actor, <laughs> after all. Yeah. That's true. He's been in some amazing movies. Oh, my God. Well, welcome to the show, Ronald, as Jeremiah. Welcome, Antonio. Let me give you guys your bodies back, and let's get ready to podcast about Fargo Season 2, Episode 5. The You know, it's, it's appropriate that we are podcasting with two severed heads tonight, considering this was by far and away the most violent episode of the season so far. Yeah. I mean, I feel, <laughs> true. I feel like we earned it. I feel like uh, these heads are, uh, they, they don't come at nothing. They come at a price. These are two important heads here. Two important heads and lots of important heads, or at least one very important head was severed on Fargo this week. Uh, really shocked to say, and by the way, spoiler alert, this is for whatever reason, if you've just embarked on here and you haven't watched episode five yet, we're about to drop a bomb. But man, I was shocked to see Joe Bulo bite it this week. That seemed really fast. Yeah, no kidding. Poor Joe. I was. I hate to lose Joe. I really, really, I'm going to miss him, yeah, man. Just after we were singing Brad Garrett's praises last week. I know. We must have jinxed it. I was going to say, is it our fault? Like, who are we going to praise this week? Can we praise, can we please praise <laughs> Jeffrey Donovan as Dodd? Yeah. You think, yes. Do you think it's because we did a podcast, uh, Antonio, you and I did a podcast with Kurt Clark fairly recently? Did the did the Clark curse uh, rub oh, off on Fargo right. a little bit more? and claim some heads? I hope not. Ooh. I would, I'd hate to think that just through a little um, innocent social contact with the tabulator, uh, I now have cursed. I'm now diseased. Uh, that would be terrible. Um, be, I, I shook a lot of hands tonight already. This is bad business. <laughs> oh, my God. It's spreading. It's spreading. The infection. No. Uh, but, yeah, we lose Joe Bulo tonight. It's it seems like Mike Milligan gets a boost in the process. Unfortunately, we lose one of the bathroom brothers as well. Uh, we <laughs> may have lost Charlie Gerhardt. We certainly lost his friend Virgil via Butcher Cleaver to the face. Ed That's and Peggy. It seems, Ed and Peggy. It seems like their spot has blown up. Um, Betsy's not looking great. It's a really chaotic time in the Midwest at the moment. So where, where should we where should we start with this, Antonio? I guess maybe maybe to begin with, what's just your take on Fargo as a whole? 
whole right now and as an episode, The Gift of the Magi. What did you think of this week and what do you think of where the show is currently? We talked last week about how business clearly seemed to be picking up and how it would be interesting to see the rest of the season in light of what appeared to be uh, things really bubbling to the surface between Kansas City and the Gerhardt clan. We got that. We got literally the head of what was sent from Kansas City severed off uh, and someone else perhaps jumping back into their place. But we really seem to only have two Kansas City people left uh, in Minnesota here. So something's got to give. We're going to have to get some replacements or I don't know what. But we also talked last week about the Vietnam connections and about fighting a war on someone's home turf. And it really does seem like the Gerhards had a bit of success. That said, Dodd, even after the success, said they're going to hit back really hard. So we have to expect that that is coming. We also know this all ties into Sioux Falls. So more violence is on the way as well. We don't exactly know where it's going to end up. I did see an interesting post, and I apologize. I don't remember where I read it, that some people are uh, are suspecting that Maybe the ultimate evil people in this season or maybe this season is really just going to be about Ed and Peggy and that everybody else is going to beat each other up in the process and Ed and Peggy are going to be the new Lester, uh, you know, Lester Nygaard. So I don't know how that's all going to come to bear, but it's been fascinating to watch so far. And I, I really think for, we could go anywhere from here. We've seen so much already. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm very excited to see what happens. I mean, we talked about on this podcast, we're in a series where they could jump ahead. No problem. So it, it will be fascinating to watch where we go from here. Yeah, well, I don't know about jumping ahead, but they at least claimed ahead this week. And that was very big business that, you know, not even, not even five full episodes in the thing. And we're already killing off one of the heavies with Joe Bulo. So it really is a declaration of war, not just within the context of Fargo, but also in the context, you know, the meta context of, yeah, we can do this. This is what Fargo is able to do. We can kill Brad Garrett halfway into this thing. Jeremiah, what was your take on this week? Oh, best episode, I think, of the season so far. It was yeah. fantastic. Uh, the first 10 minutes and the last 10 minutes were like, whoa. You know, you were that, that kind of television where I I stopped even taking notes. I was so in, enthralled in what was going on. It was fantastic. It was really, really good stuff. And you're right. I mean, it was definitely shocking that we lost Joe so early. But uh, I was glad to see that he had a nice, clean head of hair, yeah. you know, sticking out of that box uh, for Mike to touch one last time. <laughs> you know, that I think I do think that that was a great touch. It was a smooth touch. Yeah. It was a soft touch in so many ways. <laughs> but but I but I thought that it, I thought that it was, you know, it really does clarify that scene from earlier in the season where Joe is talking about how beautiful his hair is because when you do see Mike Milligan open the box and you don't see Brad Garrett's face or anything like that but you see yeah. Mike's fingers kind of grazing over the hair you can kind of feel what it feels like a little bit I don't know if yeah. maybe that was just me <laughs> but I was feeling a little bit of like uh, like sense of vision off of that I thought that that was I thought that that was a really good touchstone that you kind of can you know there's some sort of tangible feeling to Joe Bulo's hair and it kind of makes it miss guy in the moment oh absolutely and i'm never gonna look at a hat box the same ever again yeah <laughs> i always assume there's a head inside a hat box <laughs> oh, do you okay yeah, yeah, i learned the hard way on that one i also oh. like how jeremiah is playing it cool as though he does not right like, because right. this is a man who yeah. regularly sends heads in boxes we know this to be true uh, it's true yeah. it's true i might have done it a few times just, <laughs> just, just a couple question for you guys just kind of about the head and the hair like we're talking about um do you think this is a scene or the the reward or the payoff uh, with the hair is going to be something that is playing better for people that are binge watching. And maybe that scene is really closer to top of mind. It's not like we forgot, but I could foresee people forgetting and not putting 
that together. Oh yeah, there was one scene for like 30 seconds earlier in an episode, several episodes ago, where they were talking about what kind of shampoo to use and that was it. So I, I do wonder if people are going to make that connection as easily week to week. Uh, clearly, I think when you watch it and binge, you will. But I don't know. That was interesting to me. Yeah, it was interesting, too. I saw a bunch of people talking about this on Reddit, about how freaking awesome this uh, season, just like last season, was to watch it as in a binge because it's just going to be that much del- more delightful. As you said, this is a great scene uh, for that exact reason, is that you know if you watch it in a binge, you're going to you just remember that scene very fresh in your mind about him talking about what shampoo he uses and then seeing the scene with his severed head in the box and only seeing just a little bit of his hair sticking out. So I agree. It, it's going to be much better to watch as a, as a binge watch. That's for sure. Yeah, I, I have to agree. And I think, um, you know, we, we've talked about this before and, you know, Jeremiah watched Fargo season one weekly. Antonio and I both watched it on a binge. Antonio curious for your take, but I can say for myself, there is no longer any doubt whatsoever that I, I like the show better as a binge. I like being able to dig into this story all in one shot. And I really do wish I could just, you know, get to the next chapter already. I really mm-hmm. loved that with season one. Not that I think that this is a bad viewing experience by any stretch of the imagination. Fargo season two is still blowing away a lot of what's on television right now. Um, but I, I really do think that the story is probably better served as something that you could just like tear into, you know, as you would a book, as a really good book that you could just sit down with for a day or two and just devour. I really right. wish I could do that with Fargo season two. And an episode like this and the point that you're raising now, Antonio, really brings that into focus for me that I feel like Fargo is a better show when it's being binged. Yep, I feel that way too. And I almost wondered if they're designing it that way. There, there's some, been some pretty good articles uh, in the zeitgeist in the last couple of weeks from some reputable news sources. And I apologize, I can't cite any of them directly. But there is a lot can't of Can't or won't. Can't. I don't remember exactly where they're from. but he, His contract doesn't allow it. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but I did not write any of them. Josh, if you wrote any of them, I would remember. If you have written them, I just haven't seen them. But what I would say is... I'm not, I think I'm a not lo- writing anything about the season. You're not, no. No, it's not about Fargo. It's just about in general. Uh, content creators maybe are now thinking a little bit more about how shows will be viewed as a binge uh, versus how you know they maybe were before, which is not that with that without that in mind. And so I think that's I think that that's interesting um, to to view Fargo because clearly. This is a show that people did binge a lot and people will catch up on. One of the, the article I'm thinking about was at Screen Crush and it's called Netflix popularized binge watching. So why are they now trying to kill it? And it's about how Netflix's shows are taking a little bit of a different approach. And I do think Fargo is probably taking the binge approach. And I think this scene to me represented that. Um, also killing a character this early on in the, the show, uh, week to week. It doesn't seem like it's that early on a binge. It's especially early because you just got to know the guy and he's gone. So some of this stuff is very fascinating to me when they're making the show. I wonder how much they're thinking about the binge. Yeah, I mean, we're living, mm-hmm. we're living kind of a, an evolving time for, for the way that these stories are crafted. And I mean, we could spend an entire podcast just talking about that. Let, <laughs> let's not. That. Yeah, no, 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 no. We don't let, need let's to. not just because there's so much else to cover and not enough time. Um, but, but let's, let's stick with this whole Kansas City versus the Gerhardt thing. This is really, you know, it's contrasted with the arrival of Bruce Campbell as Jeremiah Panhorst, as Ronald Reagan, as Jeremiah Panhorst, <laughs> which is a really great sequence. Uh, and, you know, having that contrasted against this, you know, very sudden sort of spontaneous guerrilla attack 
on the Kansas City mob in Gerhardt territory, you know, in we assume in Dakota. Um, and it's just a bloodbath, and it's really unexpected for a bunch of reasons. Number one, you don't expect to lose a Kitchen Brother this early or Joe Bulo this early, and you certainly don't expect it making a lot of sense for the Gerhards to, to strike Kansas City when they are actually armed to the teeth you know they're on a hunt they've got guns they've got bows and arrows they are going out they have you know there's there's blood in the air they're looking to kill rabbits and deer and fox and things and that's when they strike so just strategically jeremiah you're the resident psychopath of this podcast what did you think of this from a strategic standpoint was this was this the right way to attack uh the kansas city mob well, first of all, I learned right away that you can't take a bow and arrow to a gunfight for sure. You're not, you're going to lose out on that one. That's 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 for sure. Tell that's Oliver Queen. <laughs> Oliver Queen would disagree with you. But you have failed this city. Yeah, you have failed Fargo. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I was kind of taken back by them hitting them at this particular point. Although, actually, the first thought I had was once the hit comes on. I was thinking to myself, yeah, what are they doing out in the open in the middle of nowhere? I mean, to me, it almost seems like it kind of was almost too easy for the Garrotts to be to, to hit them the way they were. I, I just was a little surprised. I understand they're having a meeting with this commissioner and trying to get things settled up, you know, bef- you know, once they take over. I get all that. But what are they really? They're out hunting. Right. You know, I mean, I, I just see like they were just right out in the open, just ready for them to just take them down. It was crazy, right? Yeah. Well, it seemed like a lot of things happen at once. You know, Hansy is really good at tracking down what happened to Rye and he sources it to the butcher of Laverne or that's the, that's the reputation that Dodd sets up for just this, you know, schmohawk butcher that we know to be Ed, who is not some hired gun, but they're able to weave this story that it was Kansas City and that really lights a fire under Floyd's butt to go after Kansas City with, you know, hell and fire and brimstone fast. Um, but the other piece of it, too, is Joe Bulo says to Floyd out of respect, in, in the last episode, out of respect, I'm going to give you some time to think about the counteroffer. And now that like we're offering you less and anything other than total surrender is going to result in, you know, every single one of you guys getting killed. That's true. Um, yeah. And it's it goes back to the to the great concept that has existed long before Breaking Bad, but was really crystallized on Breaking Bad of no more half measures. You got to go full measure. And if Joe mm-hmm. Bulo was trying to just, you know, get this territory as efficiently as possible, then maybe Joe Bulo should have had Otto Gerhardt killed last week, and maybe Joe Bulo shouldn't have told Floyd that she's got a second chance. Maybe Joe Bulo should have red-wedding the crap out of Floyd Gerhardt. Antonio, yeah. what do you think about all Yeah, that? I think that's interesting because he he's Mr. Market. The market says, you know, you, you buy him out or you give him bodies, and he seems to have the, uh, taken a very pragmatic approach to what is he considers a business acquisition. If you'll remember... When we first meet Joe Bulo, he's giving what amounts to be a 70s version of a PowerPoint presentation about expansion of the mafia. And it's really funny to me to think about a PowerPoint presentation about expansion of the mafia. But that seems to be who Joe Bulo is. Joe Bulo does not seem to be a killer. And if you remember what Floyd said to Oto about how, or what Floyd said to Joe about how Oto would have shot him dead in his tracks, then I think you're looking at, uh, you're looking at a person who, Maybe he's not necessarily cut out for uh, what he's been asked to do in this particular instance vis-a-vis the Gerhardt clan. Um, he said it's up to the Krauts, as, using his words, as to whether it's going to be a buyout or blood. But I'm, I'm not sure that he 
understood that by saying it's up to them, that he was letting them define some of the rules of engagement. And I think this was a big-time miscalculation and misstep on his part. It is interesting because we haven't seen him so much with Mike Milligan, who seems to be a lot more thoughtful about this sort of thing and who seems to be not present when a lot of the bad stuff is going down and sort of playing it real cool uh, and really kind of the head of the curve in that respect. And so maybe – Maybe Joe Bulo is just not cut out for this particular incident and the way that society is now. Uh, maybe Joe Bulo was a better mafia expansion guy at a time when, you know, we weren't going to happen. We weren't going to have this with the Gerhards after Vietnam. I don't know. But it is, I think, in keeping with what we know about him as a character, uh, he doesn't, he never at any point seemed like a real gangster. He seemed more like a banker uh, and somebody who was mm-hmm. making business deals. And this is what happens when you try to be half a gangster, you get taken out. This is what happens when you <laughs> half a gangster in the head. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Josh, you make a good point, though, about this. I didn't really think much about it. You're right. At this time, it is possible to think about this, that the KC mob guys, Joe and everybody, was thinking that we might still be in a peaceful time because right. they haven't heard whether or not they're going to turn down the second offer. So good that's good thinking, my friend, because I, I didn't think about that. And who who knew that uh, Floyd would be so easily deceived by uh, Dodds so easily? I, I was a little surprised by that. But, yeah, you're right. He, Joe doesn't necessarily have to think that his head is in trouble at the moment. No, no. And I, and I think that it goes back to, you know, the comparison that Antonio brought up. I think it was last week, if not a little bit earlier than that, of, you know, looking at the situation in Minnesota and North Dakota and the whole Fargo of it all, looking at that as kind of an allegory for the Vietnam conflict. And, mm-hmm. you know, America invading Vietnam and not fully understanding what they were getting themselves into when they were fighting the Viet Cong and how guerrilla tactics and insurgents were able to kind of just take the whole thing down. You know, it doesn't matter the size of the gun you bring to the fight if you don't understand who you're shooting at. And I think that we saw that with Kansas City, which is the big organization. We even have Joe Bulo talking about how, um, you know, big business is about to take care, is about to take down the family thing. Well, I think that it was a real underestimate estimation of the family thing. I think it was a real underestimation of the little guy of the local. And I think that that is really playing in the themes of how this season seems to be mirroring the Vietnam conflict. Yeah. And then after it, I think that that's a really excellent observation about big business taking over and all of it. I mean, you got to consider that the decade they're about to embark on in the 80s is the kind of decade that saw that rapid business expansion that ultimately ended up with a lot of jobs, uh, you know, that were on the table and growing really well uh, going out the window. The whole Main Street of Luverne, Minnesota, if you will, if they put a Walmart in uh, outside town, then Mr. Butcher's out of business. And you can tell that story about so many American towns and so many of these small people did change. Uh, but it, it didn't come without a lot of uh, growing pains for all the people involved. And I think we're seeing this, the, the mafia is a business. We're seeing this in that regard as well. So I think that that's fascinating. That said, I don't really understand the rules of engagement here. If we're talking about the scene where Hansi has faced down with Joe Blue, Bula, we don't see him actually cutting the head off. But we do see him killing only one kitchen brother. Right. Why doesn't he kill them both? It's a great question. <laughs> it's a it's a real it's a really great question, and that is you know it's the it's the definition of a half measure. You know, right. he didn't go full measure on both brothers. He only 
we killed half of the brothers. And this was, you know, we, we keep conjuring up Alan Seppenwall here on Poster Recaps because this guy is a great, great critic and has fantastic observations. But in his recap of, of this episode, he notes this. He says, why did mm-hmm. Hansi not just kill the other one since he's knocked him unconscious? Uh, I get that the series is going for a parallel to when Mr. Wrench lost Mr. Numbers last season and didn't want to lose both kitchens so early in the season particularly since it could exploit the loneliness of being the surviving twin. But Hansi has just seen how quickly those two turned the tide against his men. So leaving one alive makes no practical sense for a character who's been depicted as supremely confident and a ruthless pragmatist. If the idea was that he was in a hurry to catch up with Joe, it did not come across since he could have very quickly stabbed or shot the other kitchen and still caught up to the very slow Joe. So I think Seppenwall really encapsulates a lot of the points of maybe what was trying to be accomplished here on the part of Fargo and probably what was what was a little bit of a whiff. Um, I like the idea behind keeping one of the Kitchen Brothers alive, but the way that it was shot to have maybe both of those Kitchen Brothers in the same exact space at the yeah. same exact time was probably not the right choice in terms of crafting the episode. Yeah, I I read that too that Seppenwall wrote, and I completely agree. And I think that if you would have could have been handled a different way, like you said, with having them in the same shot where it was so easy for Hansi to just immediately just you know take them both out, didn't fit didn't fit the character very well. But uh, yeah, so if we were, we're nitpicking a particular mistake, I think that would be maybe one of the things you could look at in this episode. Yeah, as far as mistake, but yeah, it definitely did fit. And one of the things I want to bring up too that I thought was kind of odd was when Joe, uh, he's kind of panting, he comes running up towards the cars, and he looks up and he sees Hansi just standing there. He's got a gun in his hand. Why would he just get his gun up and start shooting at this guy? I'm a little confused by this. I want to see how this played out, how Joe wind up dead and getting his head cut off, because I was just like going, okay, he's standing there. Just shoot him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I liked that. I liked that actually, because I, I, I like uh, that you don't, you don't need to see how that ended up because it's such a foregone conclusion. You know, if you uh, put, if you put Joe up against Hansi Dent in like the Street Fighter <laughs> tournament pit, uh, you know who's getting Sonic boomed out of there. It's just, it's really not a contest and you don't need to see the particulars of it because of course Hansi Dent is going to get that guy. Yeah. Listen, I'm, I'm joking. Of course, obviously the two of them, He's Hansy's definitely going to take it out. And it actually goes to the point you said earlier that Joe has kind of come across more of a businessman than a fighter. And I think that, you know, if there's one guy who's going to lose out quickly to him in that situation where he's got the gun and he's just standing there, it would probably be Joe. (laughs) So it probably fits his character very well. And I agree. I did not want to actually see the transit because seeing the deaths would have, would have taken away from the beautifulness of the scene with the, with the head in the, in the box. So, yeah. Speaking of that scene with the head in the box and, and speaking of Hansy, uh, I want to ask like, where are we in our minds? Like, where are we with Hansy? Uh, I want to talk about a couple of other scenes in this episode. Um, we have Hansy kind of on the steps when bear comes and talks to him. And Bear's giving him a very kind of like, you're always part of the family to me, uh, even though I know you're mostly Dodd's man. If you ever wanted to work with mom and I, you've got to see it at the table. you got to be up front with us. Hansi is lying for Dodd right. um, and very right. clearly doing this. Uh, so I don't know exactly. I don't know exactly how we as an audience are supposed to feel about Hansi because 
Dodd is a horrible person, and there are a couple more obvious, clear uh, elements of this tonight. We see him, uh, we hear about him beating his wife because she looks sad, uh, which is a monstrous thing to do. That's what Simone mm-hmm. tells to Mike Milligan that, oh, yeah, dad just beats mom up when she looks sad, so she smiles like a ghoul all the time. Um, we see that. We see him threatening his daughter later in the episode, and Floyd puts the kibosh on it. We are not supposed to like Dodd, clearly. Uh, clearly. But I think Han- I think Hansy's being presented as kind of this badass who maybe we should like. Um, he's a kitchen brother killing Joe Bulo, holding gun, weaving kind of guy. So I don't know. We- covering those scenes, I mean, I I don't know. Where do you guys think we are with Hansy? And where I mean, now that we're in the mid season, um, what- where's the arrow pointing with Hansy, and where should we go from here? Oh, it's pointing way up. Midnight. <laughs> Arrow's pointing at midnight right now on Hansy Dent. Hansy Dent is a true, true badass and a really complicated, great character. And I think that these are the types of questions we're supposed to be asking about the guy. Um, I don't think that he's straightforward. Maybe he is. Maybe he is. And that will be a little disappointing if he is just out and out a Dodd man, if that's just what it is. I get the sense that there's something a little more going on behind those eyes and something ticking in his brain. And, you know, bear is coming at him with some pretty, you know, solid advice or at least, you know, a really solid gesture of your family. I appreciate you. What you've done for us is fantastic. Yeah, I'm filling you out because we just, you know, we just kicked this thing from six to midnight in this war against Kansas City because of what you told us about the butcher of Laverne and all of these things. However, we appreciate your efforts and, you know, you could, I know you're more of a Dodd guy than a bear guy, but I would love it if you were a bear guy. And I don't think that it's insincere. I think, you know, unrelatedly, I think that if this family were to, if, if the fate of the Gerhardts is to fall in bear Gerhardt's hands, I think this family is doing okay. He seems pretty level-headed and pretty sensible. It's kind of beside the point. Um, I think, I think that whatever is going on with Hansy, I really hope that it's a little bit bigger than Dodd and maybe he's waiting to make some kind of move. Um, you know, whatever, wherever his true loyalties lie, if they're like kind of self-interested loyalties, if he is waiting to kind of see how this Gerhardt situation and this Kansas city situation shakes out and where he can land in the dust, I think that that would be really good. But I don't know. He, he's coming. He's coming across as a really strong character to me. I'm loving everything with Hansy this season. He just seems like too smart and too sharp of a guy to take orders from Dodd Gerhardt. That's all I'll say. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And the way Dodd treats him, I mean, he treats him like a slave. I mean, it's yep. terrible the way he treats him, and it, it makes me wonder because one of the things I was thinking about when I was thinking this exact question about that you had raised here, Antonio, about what do we think about. Hansy is one of the things I'm wondering is, you know, who is he going to stay loyal to? Is he going to stay loyal to the family as a whole? Is he going to stay loyal to Dodd? And I'm, I've been wondering, well, you know, how is, what's the fate of how, how is Dodd going to die? Because we all know he's, he's, he's a goner. I mean, some, some, somebody's going to kill him. And I got a long list of people, including obviously Bear is definitely somebody, maybe Simone, maybe Floyd, uh, Mike, Lou, somebody like that. But, you know, I was starting to wonder, what? Why not Hansy? Why couldn't he turn on him? Because this guy is just—it just—he treats him so terribly. I mean, yeah, it is—it is fascinating because somebody has to, and you just—you named yeah. all those people. I mean, in this episode, what we see—we see Dodd lying at the beginning of the episode about Butcher Laverne. That's his name. He's down there. You know, his name is Butcher Laverne, and that's just a straight up. Lie. I think he's—he's—it's more of like a like a the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. I think it's like a the Butcher of Laverne. Yeah, I don't well, think his name way, is Butch, he says Butcher, Butcher Laverne, Laverne. Sounds like a great guy. I'd like to have a drink with. Them. I. Really 
regardless, I don't want to have a drink with Dodd Gerhardt. So he's sure, he's sure. cooking up <laughs> intel, first of all. We have that scene. Um, he's making fun of, uh, you know, he makes fun of everybody when he comes in. Uh, later, when he walks back into the house, we've got that scene where he's like, we got him, Bulo too. Uh, and he says, you know, uh, you shouldn't have thought we could negotiate with them. That's your feminine side coming out, he says to Floyd. So he's ripping on women there. Later in the episode, um, he, Charlie says to him, like, you know, a real boss would understand that a right. Gerhardt uh, should kill a Gerhardt. Uh, and Charlie, he wins him over with that. And, and Dodd, going against Bear's wishes, sends Charlie into battle, which, as you point out, Jeremiah, clearly puts him, I think, square in the crosshairs for Bear. Um, so that's bad. Uh, and then, yeah, he's threatening Simone. Uh, we hear he beats his wife when Simone's talking to Milligan. He mocks Bear for taking orders from a woman with Floyd. Um, and then that scene, Josh, you said it was neither here nor there, but I think it's both. Bear says at the end of that scene, you know, when you say we, we if we were Bear Hearts, as we, as we will, if we were uh, Bear Hearts, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we uh, would yeah, all be better yeah. off. Bear says, in the end, we all get what we deserve. And yeah. I wondered if you took that line as sort of a kind of a summary of this season of Fargo. I think it all plays pretty well. The only thing I can't fit in that is is uh, Betsy. I don't understand how Betsy fits within that sort of ethos. But for everyone oh, else. Oh, I got it. I know how that works. Go ahead. Tell me. Oh, she gets abducted by the aliens and she goes to live, live peacefully <laughs> ever after in the stars. And she deserves that instead of the canker. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, that's so. probably true. <laughs> I just thought that that was an interesting little thing that Bear said in that scene. Uh, and I know we're jumping around, but it's the mid-season. So I think it's better that we, instead of going scene by scene, cover these characters and where they are and where they might be going forward. I think Bear's planning a flag like I love to. Like, hey, that line of dialogue, in the end, we all get what we deserve. I, I'd love to see how that plays out over the course of the rest of the season because it's coming for Dodd and it, I, if it, if it should come from a woman in my opinion, but uh, you're right, yeah. Jeremiah, it could come from any number of anyone else. I, I think, be- I think it ought to, it really ought to come from, you know, either Simone or Floyd. I think that you're right. I think that this real, you know, he man, woman hater really deserves to get, uh, get his comeuppance from one of these really tough ladies, I think. Yeah. And I think that would, that would be beautiful. I think that would be the best way to have a play. But they are setting up for this kind of Dodd versus Bear moment. I mean, to me, I felt like that whole scene really was was feeding us that that, like you said, planting a flag. I really feel like that we were set up for that. But uh, hopefully, maybe maybe it will be one of the women that takes him out because this guy's got to go, right? <laughs> got to go. Got to. Yeah. Go. What? Go ahead. I wanted, yeah, yeah, no, I, I wanted to it. wrap up the Gearhearts before we get into the rest of the story because. They were kind of separate for it. Are, are, am I missing anything big with the rest of the Gearhart family other than how Charlie crosses paths with Ed? No, that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to follow Bear down to the bear hole and go see what his little, what little bear is doing, what Charlie's up to. Cause Charlie, we've been seeing, has really wanted to get into the family biz. That's really what he's been interested in. And, uh, it does not end the way that he wanted it to. And we talked last week about, you know, Chekhov's reloading that seemed to be going on with Charlie where he shows Dodd that he can reload a gun. That comes to bear, no pun intended, uh-huh. in this week, in this week's episode, uh, where we see that Charlie Charlie, it's even less about reloading the gun and he, you know, he kind of screws up with the one bullet in the, in the chamber and that's all he's able to get off and he screws that up and, you know, he gets shot with some ricochet action and it's, it's just really bad and everything that went on with Charlie 
was really sad to me. You know, from like the, the payphone call that he places, like, can, can you put my dad on? Can you tell him I really do want to go to school? And yet he still reluctantly goes into Ed's shop and shoots after him. And even with Noreen, it seemed like in another universe, there could have been something sweet between Charlie and Noreen. Yeah, they both so, like Camus. They both love Camus, and, you know, they both could have loved to move together. It would have been nice, but that's not what it seems like we're going to get out of that. If Charlie even made it out of this thing alive, I mean, it seems, oh, like he's he's, alive. It seems like he's alive for now, but who knows for how long. Um, so the Charlie of it all was really a bummer this week. It was a bummer. It was really depressing. Yeah, super, super depressing. Yeah, he he's like torn because he's he he's supposed to be this Gerhardt man who has all these things. Clearly, he has um, some physical limitations. Uh, with uh, we, I believe he has CP, and that's tough um, for him to already fight against this reputation. Uh, whether he's tough or not, or where's you know where his sack is, or what he, does he have the guts to do it, or whatever. And I'm sure he wants to prove a lot because of that. But he also like Rye is a young Gerhardt uh, male, and there's probably a strong belief that he needs to be a certain way and of course bear has a heart the bear heart and he doesn't want him to do it because his mom didn't want to do it and the mom is clearly a sore subject dodd uses it to poke fun at bear later uh so charlie's had a rough life apparently i'm growing up a Gerhardt male, not having a mother anymore, um, having a physical affliction. Uh, it's not easy, but I mean, Noreen did respond to him. I thought that scene was great. We had remarked in this podcast that she was reading Camus and how that was uh, an interesting little side note. Here it comes right to the forefront. She has a great conversation with Ed about how life isn't worth it and you know, you're just going to die anyway and it's a colossal joke. And I thought Ed was really interesting in this scene because Ed said some things that I texted you guys about that reminded me of uh, Gus from season one, because right. Ed basically says like, well, yeah, you know, life is all those things you're saying, but you have to try, like you have to, to try to do the right thing. You have to try to live the American dream. You have to try for yourself. And it was reminiscent. What conversation was that Jeremiah or Josh? Do you guys remember from season one? Yeah, it was from season one. It's it's mid season one when when Gus is uh, Gus Grimley is having a conversation with his Orthodox Jewish neighbor who's telling him the story about the guy who you know hates all of this evil in the world and wants to give so much of himself and he just doesn't feel like he has enough to give and he keeps like selling organs and all this stuff and eventually takes his own life and uh, and and the guy basically concludes only a fool thinks he can solve the world's problems and Gus responds by saying yeah but you You've got to try, don't you? Yeah, I completely forgot about that. That was brilliant pickup, to, uh, Antonio, about thinking about that because I completely forgot about that that entire conversation, and it fits perfectly into what uh, what they were discussing here in this episode. So, right. Well, yeah, it's the, like six, it's the a- six the six ungraspables was the uh, was was the episode, and I think it's funny that that's you know it's it's obviously that episode is taking its title from from you know the parable and everything like that, and it seems like this week is as well you know the gift of the magi, you know getting getting gifts you can't return uh, is kind of similar thematic. This week. Well, and also, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah, parable for sure, the tie in between the two episode titles and everything. But if you say like a, you're, you're a fool to try to solve the world's problems, I think in this episode, we really do see uh, coming to the surface how foolish Ed and Peggy really are for both of their decisions. I mean, at the beginning of the episode, um, we see Peggy as truly her life represented. She's a person who lives through uh, pictures and desire to do something different. Her, uh, She's a hoarder and her basement is filled with these magazines. We'd already seen them stacked up in the kitchen, but when we really get a look at 
she can't even leave her magazines behind when she needs to hit the road. Right. She is so fixated on living a different life. And so that has always been her. And it's sort of foolish, I think, for her to assume that she's going to be able to just go and live a different life. And I, Ed, Ed is, you know, very bullheaded about it. Like, we're going to stay. The shop, the kids, that's why we did all this. We're staying. And he says something to the effect of like, you know, uh, we'll deal with what happens, uh, what comes at us, or it'll deal with us. But that's right. the way it's going to yeah. be. And it's like that that seems to be kind of a very stick in the mud like uh I'm just going to plant I'm going to plant my feet here and I'm not moving and I'm it's like almost a temper tantrum. Uh and Peggy you know is not being foolish and she's like we got to get the hell out of here. And then throughout the course of this episode they reverse roles. So Ed ends up wanting to skip town immediately and Peggy's the one who sells her car and decides it's time to buy the butcher shop. And I think there's your gift of the magi obviously but I think right. it really does show that both of them are kind of foolish uh, for thinking that they can solve the problems that they've been in uh, at various right. times, and they switch roles, and I think that's interesting. Yeah, and you know what? Also, too, this works very well thematically with all the discussions Lou's having with Reagan, you know, about wanting to solve these problems, you know, and here's Reagan who talks the big talk, but he really doesn't know the solutions neither. But Lou's asking that question, like, you know, how can we fix this stuff? I mean, how can we fix all these problems in the world? So it, it worked beautifully all the way through all the stories yeah i mean i think there, there's a lot to unpack with the reagan of it all but that that line of like there's no problem an american can't fix and you know lou is like yeah but how and he's like I don't know. <laughs> you know it's just kind of good well like, yeah but i don't know i don't know oh ronnie tell us tell us about yeah. the shining city on the hill <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think it's funny because he in that same speech, we can talk about the Reagan of it all. First of all, he's talking about saving 77 lives in five years as a lifeguard. Maybe that's true, but I feel like that's the kind of thing that if a candidate claimed it today, the internet would destroy that. I mean, that's like, <laughs> I think Ben Carson might have saved that many lives too, uh, in um, a period yeah. in Egypt. So, you know, there, there's that. He's giving a speech about like not, there's no, not going to be a man on a white horse, uh, but then he wants to talk about his shining city on a hill. So he's like mixing up his rhetoric. And then when we meet him, his, he asks, <laughs> it's so funny to me because he asks where, you know, where he served, where, uh, where everything that went on, uh, and, and, and it's like, oh, where did you serve, son? And then Reagan's own war stories are about mo war movies. <laughs> right. He doesn't have any war stories about war movies, which is yeah. hilarious to me. Yeah, that was such a great scene, and I'm telling you, Bruce Campbell was was nailing it, wasn't he? Oh, he was, oh, so he, was he was great. Real, really, really funny casting. Uh, you know, Bruce Campbell having a hell hell of a hell of, hell of a late 2015 between Ash versus Evil Dead and really getting back into his iconic role, and then stepping into the iconic shoes of Ronald Reagan, who already had a uh, you know a tour de force performance from Michael Showalter earlier earlier this year. Yes, so, yeah, really, really great stuff. Yeah, really great stuff happened in the Reagan camp so to speak this year but i i think that it's it's very funny where reagan even he, he has that line where he's crossing swords or almost crossing swords with lou solvers yes and he's talking about his war stories he's getting them tangled and he's not the swords but the stories he's getting the stories tangled and he's he's thinking of oh was it that one was it that one i don't really know and just like this guy just like reeks of crap, just reeks of bull crap. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know what more Ronald Reagan contributes to the season other than kind of just being, you know, a real historical face 
of this, you know, these questions that the, that the season is asking these questions of the time that we live in right now. And, uh, are, are we, you know, have we unleashed a holy hell on ourselves? Can we, can we put that toothpaste back in the tube sort of thing? Are we the cancer? Is my wife afflicted with the cancer of this world? Can you stop it? Um, I don't know if there's, if there's more Reagan, if there's more Reagan business here, or if this was just, you know, a one-off representation of kind of these ideas that are at play, but what, what's your, what's your take guys? What do you guys think? Do you think that there's more to do with Bruce Campbell here? Or do you think that this was just a, a one-off, a, a one-stop shop on the Ronald Reagan? Trip? Well, I'd, I'd heard that he was, that Reagan was going to be part of the story. I didn't read anything further than, uh, you know, how much he was going to be involved. My feeling was, is that, you know, the bus, the tour has already made its trip through Minnesota and he's going to be on his way, continue on his campaign trail. Yeah. And what I reason, what like reason it, to come back? Yeah, right. Exactly. So I, I think that this is going to, that's going to be it for him. But, uh, you know, I, I loved what Bruce was doing with, with, playing reagan so i'd love for him to come back but i felt like it was just going to be this one time what yeah, do you this, think, this is the narrative uh we're going to get from reagan but i think there's going to be plenty of reagan thematically throughout we can't forget that oh yeah the first episode was waiting for dutch it opened with people literally waiting for ronald reagan to show up i think that there's a lot of belief that america's in a troubled time with gas lines and a recession and that they're waiting for dutch they're waiting for a leader to come in and help pull them out of this uh and we get the literal we get to look behind the curtain a little bit in the scene with lou where we see that maybe the guy's all hat and no cattle that he's a lot of charisma and he's a lot of leadership but he's not a lot of uh, not a lot of pragmatism or wisdom uh, or intelligence and i think that maybe people wanted a, a charismatic leader maybe people just needed to be inspired about being America. We can't forget that Ronald Reagan led the country during the time when we won the Cold War. And I think that a lot of people would say, um, you know, that's, uh, that's a, a huge credit to Ronald Reagan's leadership and making America believe that we could do things like that. This is a guy who, in this era we have now of red state, blue state, most of the country's voting the same way every election, maybe five or six states are purple. Ronald Reagan won something like 48 or 49 states' electoral votes, which is almost unprecedented. It's insane level of popularity that this guy had i mean he made freaking carl weathers cry guys did you see that of course yeah (laughs) so the theme i think the thematic stuff we've seen in other episodes and i think we will continue to see that the nation the people the time that we're encountering these characters in this particular story they're all waiting for Dutch. They're all waiting for um, this great change or these solutions to their problems they're waiting for assistance and help and i think that we have to consider that theme uh, as we evaluate the second half of this season, uh, just like we have considered the Vietnam theme, uh, just like that's been prevalent throughout, and just like we've entertained throughout the discussions of uh, the UFOs and the paranormal. I think that there wasn't much of that this episode, but uh, we have to kind of consider these thematic things that have been presented, and we have to consider where they interact with the narrative, uh, how they interact, and where that drives the story forward. So yeah. um, I think that that... We're done with Reagan from a narrative standpoint. I definitely don't think we're done with him from a thematic standpoint. I think we're going to continue to see that. 
Yeah, um, those those themes are going to continue to cross over. And I think the saddest part for Carl, though, is he never did get to hear that uh, answer about Joan Crawford and the crash. So. <laughs> sure. poor, yeah. poor guy. Yeah, poor guy. Poor guy, indeed. <laughs> Lou just wasn't cooperating. <laughs> like what Lou just says, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. He had other things on the <laughs> Carl Weathers, he, he, this is a great episode for Nick Offerman. He got in, cracked a few jokes, got out. No problem. Yeah. yeah if, if, that, if that's the speed of Nick Offerman on Fargo, if it never amounts to anything more than that, I'm just glad to have him as, you know, some Abs- color on the show me too absolutely and yeah. it works perfect too i like it when he does it. it's, it's fantastic he just gets in gets out it's perfect well let's talk about what i know that that the three of us we've we've batted this back and forth a lot of times would probably hope that this is just color on the show but maybe it's a little bit more oh God, uh, and no. let's 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 stick with the solverson of it all you know we go we go we visit betsy at her home she's not doing well she's obviously feeling weaker her dad comes in to look after molly he has a very funny line about how he's gonna like they're gonna play with some the sugar cereal and his service weapon yes. that's really cute but before that Betsy is looking at this childhood illustration from Maggie that Molly. involves, or Molly, rather, sorry, that involves uh, a, a UFO abducting the Salverson family. So once again, UFO gate continues. Uh, Antonio, what's the significance of this? What's going on here? What do you think? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are we going to be doing alien talk right now? I think. Oh, maybe. maybe. All right. Little, let's do it. A little time. What? Oh my God, Josh! You are now entering Alien Talk oh, God. with Josh Wiggler, oh, Antonio no. Mazzaro, and Jeremiah Panholz, <laughs> and Ronald Reagan. The actor. I know they didn't know Ronald was going to be on today. Wow, uh, they should have added it. Should. To that. We have to talk about aliens now, guys. This yeah, is... now we can talk about aliens. Go ahead. Okay. I think that All was right. just I'm the sorry, sun. Jeff. That's what I'm going to say. That was just the sun in that picture. That wasn't yeah, a UFO I'm... at all. That was that was just the sun. That wasn't UFO-ish was a, at all whatsoever. Some... Not even a tiny, tiny, teensy bit to play with the people who are tracking the UFO thing. You think that is completely unrelated. It was some swamp gas reflecting off a weather balloon. I don't think it was any... No, of course that was supposed to look like a UFO. Even the way the scene is presented... Betsy kind of goes away for a half second. There's just kind of, she flutters her eyes and she's out of it for a minute. When Molly comes in, uh, she, oh, she snaps back in. So I don't think we're meant to think that she was abducted, but it plays right in to this thing. And I don't, I mean, it doesn't, to, to me, it doesn't advance the ball any. I don't think we know more about why we have UFOs in this series, but can't go unspoken. That that scene definitely happened. That drawing was definitely there and that definitely looked like a UFO to me. I mean, it's definitely meant to look like a UFO. That's for sure. I mean, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm just, I'm sticking with what I've said about it being just this whole thing being a metaphor. It's going to be tangled up in the story. But I, it's, I don't know. I really don't know what to say about it. Maybe, I mean, Molly. Obviously, maybe Molly just, you know, we know she watches a lot of television. Maybe she just really is into a lot of the, uh, the a lot of the sci-fi. You know, my favorite, my, my favorite Martian or whatever. Yeah. yeah, there you go. When, when, when was that on television? Betsy, yeah, Salverson, Betsy Salverson is going into space by the end of this thing. Mark my think so. What, what, she's not a Mormon, Josh. Like She's not going to die and get her own planet. Like I, I, never, I never said she was. <laughs> Lord of Cobol, hear our prayer. Um, I never said she was, but I, I am saying that she will be abducted by aliens and taken to their home world where she will live long and prosper. Okay. Well, that is a... You are planting a flag, my good man. Yeah, I did yeah, think I it think was funny when Peggy was sort of 
kind of uh, talking to Ed about the bad decisions that have been made and the bad things that have happened. She was like, why was that guy just standing in the road? Like he just uh, yeah. killed all those guys and yeah. he had his own car and he's just standing in the road. And I'm like, he was standing in the road because of a UFO. Yeah. yeah. Which is, you know, if you think about it, that, you know, that line was put in there just to another tie in with the whole alien thing. You know that they did that on purpose. It was be- It was perfect. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Yeah. It was great. Uh, we don't we don't need to linger long on that. Just another UFO sighting. You know, Jeremiah, if you want to play us out of the UFO segment, I think we can we can skedaddle on to other things. <laughs> okay, we'll play it out. Here we go. Oh, now we got to now concludes we- alien talk. Oh man, <laughs> it's really good. I like that. Yeah, it's nice. I would like to do a podcast about immigration called Alien Talk. With no, people. stop. Get it out of here. Get it. <laughs> no, I think it would be fine. We could no, do that. Um, no, yeah, so count me in. I, I I I hope that the UFOs are there thematically. That's been talked about a little bit. People have written think pieces on it. I think it's entirely possible that that's what it is. It could be that it's just going to exist in the context of this show, and we're just going to have to suck it up. Uh, I don't think it's there necessarily for straight comic relief. Clearly, there were some things like that on this episode. We had the great moment where Charlie sees through his eyes what the butcher coming out of the back room would look like. Blood everywhere. He looks so evil. But then right. he actually comes out, and there's not a lot of blood on him. And he's just finishing up a hog. Well, it was just it was, it was a great view of like the duality of Jesse Plemons. Yes, where like you know, there's times where he's Landry, and there's times where he's Todd, <laughs> and and that's really embodied in Ed, who is you know a mixture of his Friday Night Lights and Breaking Bad characters, where he is you know this guy who's sort of doe-eyed and innocent and doughy, and he is you know he all he wants is to grind up you know meats and own the butcher shop but then there are times where he slams a cleaver into your face and he, the blood on his apron is human blood yeah i think, uh, I, uh, so I, think, think I killed another fella <laughs> yeah i killed another fella and he's so <laughs> congenial about it when he's talking to peggy um so yeah i mean we, we we kind of hurried past a lot of that just the sequence was great uh you know the the whole the yeah, the tension and the, and the fire catching the kitchen and, you know, everything, everything from Charlie talking to Noreen and then the actual act of it all was just was beautifully, beautifully done. Um, I don't I don't know if there if there's too much more to say about the mechanics of the scene. I think what is really interesting, obviously, is where we wind up with Peggy and Ed. They've kind of switched spots where Ed is the guy saying we got to run. Peggy is saying we got to stay. The cops are going to come at the end of the episode. So obviously they're sticking around. We will see how that plays out next week. But we've been wondering kind of about the sociopathic tendencies of Peggy and, and wondering if there is something really wrong with her, if there's some shoe that's going to drop with that character that's going to be really nefarious and dark. And the fact that she was willing to sell the car and to do it kind of spontaneously and to stick around because that's what Ed wanted to do. Tells me that maybe have we been have we been too hard on Peggy? Is Peggy is Peggy more of a conventional character, someone a little more relatable than kind of this uh, you know potentially monstrous person that we had been you know maybe painting in our imaginations of what she might look yeah, like? Yeah, I'll own that. I'll own that. I that I thought Peggy would be turning into a menace throughout the season that she, we've, we talked about, compared her uh, in some ways to the Lester Nygaard or uh, said that this could be her story about her breaking bad. We called her small-time criminal, stupid criminal, and on and on and on. Uh, but I think it may be simpler than that, that she's just sort of impetuous and not sure of what she wants and just generally untethered and unhappy in life uh, and not really, I don't know what 
the bargain that she made when she married Ed was. I don't know what she expected, but she certainly isn't happy with where her life is now. I did think it was really interesting, you know, throughout the episode uh, where she said like, hey, Constance saw. She right. saw, but I don't think she'll tell. Like she didn't say we have to kill Constance. She didn't even try to manipulate Ed into thinking that, which she maybe have, had done in earlier episodes. Uh, she just said it. She threw it out there in a moment when she and Ed were close. And I think that if Peggy were truly a monster, we would have seen more manipulation in that moment. We would have seen more concern from her about tying up that loose end. And ultimately, she would have been the kind of person who didn't sell the car, kept the luggage, and drove to California on her own. Yeah, were you were you guys surprised that she that she changed her mind? Because I I was a little bit, but then not completely. It, to me, it almost seemed like as soon as she drove off, it hit her about what she was about to do, and she realized, no, that's not what I want. I do want to be with Ed. But I, I mean, I have to admit though, I pegged her as someone who would who like you said would have just kept on driving and and got out of town and started a new life somewhere else. But apparently, she is not. Now, were you guys surprised by this? Yeah, I was surprised. It was not not the direction that I thought that we were going with that character, and I like this. I like this. I I, I think that that actually that adds complexity to her. You know, yeah. I think I think that it makes her a much more complex character. The fact that she isn't just you know trying to Lady Macbeth the situation, and I you know I don't know what that says about us that that was where we were thinking with her. But I think that she she seems a lot more uh, well, you know she she's a lot more intricate than that. Keep in mind, she is the person who ran over a person, then drove home and left them in the garage with the car and. <laughs> made her husband hamburger helper and tater tots and wasn't right, necessarily but, planning to tell him. Sure, sure, sure. But I, but I think that there is, you know, if you look at that at a second glance and you give her a little more slack and you recognize that as PTSD, if you recognize that as trauma after doing something unspeakable and not wanting to acknowledge it right away, there's an innocent quality to that. Yeah. There's and, a, there's and, a relatable and, quality. And it's weird because she is also the person who stole the toilet paper. So we don't really have the full picture of Peggy yet. And I don't think we know um, right. where this has played out. And of course, as we podcast, we talk about what we think might happen, and I do think that the show is doing a fair amount of playing with expectations, um, specifically with Peggy. I think that when we get the whole piece, when the, the, the season is over and we take a look back, or if we had binged it, I think the continuum and the arc of the character will be a lot more clear uh, because she's just been kind of scattered and skittish and sort of uh, unrelatable, as you say, throughout. And now this is a lot more relatable. So. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, and now Peggy has apparently blown me up on my phone telling me I'm wrong. <laughs> she calling up saying, no, Antonio, That's not no. a person. Yeah, you don't want her to have your number, guys, I assure yeah. you. No, no, probably not. No, probably <laughs> she's not. Old she's old now. It's so weird. Uh, she's crazy. quite a hoarder, man. I tell you what, if, if just one little match falls in that basement, that whole house is going up in flames. Right. Quick. I mean, I feel like that's <laughs> enough fires for one season. I, I don't know if anything else is going up in smoke other than these people's lives, uh, as it, it seems, you know? That's right. I don't think Ed can handle watching another, you know, something important in his life could go up in flames. Well, his his life is truly on fire, you know? Seeing <laughs> it's his, true. Th- seeing his dreams go up in smoke, seeing the butcher shop go up in flames, it's 
it's as you know on the nose of a metaphor as it gets for the fact that his life is ablaze uh the fact that his life is being scorched it's scorched earth right now and they were about to run away but the episode ends with the sirens and the cops coming up and you know it's not just that the gerharts have caught up with them but now the law has caught up with them as well so where do we think we go from here what's what's the next move you know about this time in fargo season one i feel like if not an episode later uh is around the time that lester nygaard is finally having to to really answer for some of his crimes because he's you know in in jail and he you know finds his way of conning his way out of some situations but this is right around the same time that he finds himself in a sort of similar situation this season has been subverting a lot of our expectations from the first season i can't picture a situation where ed and peggy can talk their way out of this they're not as clever as lester nygaard and i know antonio you said that maybe there's something to this idea of ed and peggy being the lester of this season what did you mean by that and how does that apply to kind of what i'm talking about right now oh in terms of like um being the kind of characters who weren't necessarily evil at the start, uh, but who had a brush with something much darker and more evil than they, uh, and then kind of followed that down a natural path that ended up with them become much more evil and probably pursuing darker things about them. And I think that it's natural to compare the two seasons of Fargo. We talked in this podcast already about how maybe the Kitchen Brothers were being set up to be a numbers and wrench and about how removing one of them was like the same thing. To be perfectly honest, at this point in this episode, I was truly let down. I'm, I'm a little sick of the Kitchen Brothers. I know they're kind of badasses. They're blowing those sawed-off shotguns around, <laughs> and that's great. But they're not really doing anything, at least Numbers and Wrench. They were funny in their scenes. They're, they're fighting. Like The Kitchen Brothers are a very watered-down version of Numbers and Wrench, if that's what they're going for. And I wouldn't say that Ed and Peggy are a watered-down version of Lester Nygaard. I think it's a very different thing. Um, the show being in its second season, despite the fact that there are natural connections with characters Characters like Lou and Molly, um, that doesn't mean that it has to be the same show or do the same things. And so I think that it's easy to, at a glance at the beginning or earlier in these episodes to say, yeah, they're like Lester in that this is their breaking bad. This is their story of them sort of becoming evil people because of a brush with evil. But I, I think this is about a lot more. I think that I it's agree. about the death of the American dream. It's about the, the inability through various reasons of uh, darkness for people to achieve what they had planned or had intended. Peggy is also fraught with the American dream where she thinks that she can just be anything. Uh, and it's this whole desire or belief that she can be anything that prevents her from being something. And I think that maybe that that's kind of part of the realization that wow. she has in this episode. But uh, it is it is a different story, I think, than uh, somebody who was previously sort of uh, milk toast, pushed around, kind of silly kind of people who end up becoming evil. That doesn't seem to be the story they're telling with Ed and Peggy anymore, especially after this episode. I agree. I think that, you know, there, there would have had to have been a lot more legwork. I mean, just even thinking about season one as a touchstone for something like this, Lester was really down the rabbit hole doing really schemey, smarmy things at this point, even, um, that, that, Ed and Peggy, granted, Ed has killed a couple of people at this point, <laughs> but like, the, what's the worst that they did outside of that in terms of like really manipulative behavior? Peggy stole some toilet paper and they crashed their car in a funky yeah, way. Yeah, and, and Ed hid the body. I mean, killing, you know, grabbing no, up no, the body is the worst thing they've done. 
that wasn't great. And the, and the way that they disposed of the body was probably not recommended. Not recommended. Probably not fantastic. But it wasn't like they put a gun in a kid's backpack the no, way that Lester, no, no, the way that Lester did with his nephew. So oh, is that kinda, not good to do? No, don't do that, Jeremiah. Okay, man, don't admit it on the air. No, I'm don't do it anymore, off my list. I, no, 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 I, no. I won't do that anymore. I promise. Yeah, but that, but that kind, that kind of, that kind of craziness, that kind of just like really rapid, this escalated quickly spiral that we saw in Lester, I don't think that we've seen that in Ed and Peggy through five episodes of season two. Halfway, 50% of season two, we have not seen that. And granted, that's only 50%. It's the the half is the, the glass is half full, half empty sort of argument. But it feels like there's a lot of business that would have to be done to really convincingly sell Ed and Peggy as you know, really touched by the Malvo-ish thing. And I, and I feel like Fargo did that. And I think that there's something Lester-ish about Ed and Peggy's arc. And I think that that's great. And I think that that can still be done without turning these people into the freaking worst. Yep. Um, and I really hope so, because I, I, I don't know, like I, I want to hope that there's some hope in the American dream with these people who are in some really terrible, terrible stuff. You know, who knows what could happen next? Could they go wit pro? Could they, could they do something that turns against the Gerhardt? somehow i don't know how what that would look like but is there some sort of way out of this is it hopeless that's kind of the question that fargo is asking with a lot of these other characters who are wondering is america dying all around me are we is is america you know poisoned with this uncurable disease and is my life uncurable is is there anything i can do and it's a very very pointed question when it comes to ed and peggy and i hope that there's a happier outcome for these two than just you know falling into the icy lake and, you know, having the top of your head be all that's left in the world. I would really hope that there's something a little more than that for them, but who knows? And Josh, going back to what you said, though, as far as what can we expect, you know, next in this episode, because I was thinking about this, too. It's not like it's not like the the, the rest of the season they're going to be locked up in jail somewhere. So, you know, I was thinking the way they're going to get out of this is the fact that tactically, you know, what happened in the butcher's shop, you know, he's attacked, so he's got self-defense here. It's not like, you know, he, he has he has a reason to explain what he did and why he did it. You know, and until they come up with Rai's body, I mean, what exactly do they have on him to hold him? So I think right. I, don't, I think that's how he's going to get out of jail they or have, get out they- of from going to jail right away. They have they have Lou's hunch. You know, Lou Lou came and visited Peggy and Ed in the last episode and laid down, you know, the law and told them what's up and uh they were both like, "Yeah, they basically all ad- but admitted it." Uh, mm-hmm. And now that they're in custody, like you got to figure Lou's like, "All right, break." You got to break. You got to tell me what's up. We got to fix this thing. And these guys aren't strong enough to, you know, they can't do the Lester thing of just lying to their face. They're not dealing with Bob Odenkirk. They're dealing with young Keith Carradine. You know, they're dealing with a competent, smart, efficient guy. Um, so I, I feel like they, maybe they don't have anything to, to like hold him on super strongly. Antonio, the lawyer can weigh on, in on this more than me, the blogger can. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but I feel like, uh, that almost doesn't matter because these guys are really fragile in a horrible situation right now. And Lou, I think, can bring them in. 
Mm, good point. Yeah. What do you think, Antonio? Yeah. Are I, they, that, I mean, I think that's right. Uh, and yeah, I think that they're not, not asking for lose help sooner is maybe the worst thing that they've done in that it jeopardized the health or the life of Noreen. I don't know if Ed wasn't taking this threat seriously, uh, but I mean, he burned down a butcher shop that wasn't his uh, because somebody came at them. Uh, he jeopardized the butcher's daughter, which is not a good plan. Uh, butcher knows how to handle a knife. This is bad business. So yeah, those are kind of the worst things that, that he's done. And, and I think Josh, you're right about how I think this, you, you know, you can read Ed and Peggy against the backdrop of everything we're, we're talking about, about did we bring this evil home from the war? Wasn't like this before. The 70s are a hangover for the 60s. All of these time place discussions that are, that are happening, that is the best thing that's going with Fargo season two. And I think we're going to see that continue. Uh, and it is interesting. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating to see what characters are saying on the surface and then how they really feel. There's only one more quick scene I wanted to talk about. We didn't talk about it a ton, but the scene between Milligan and Simone. Sure. Um, where Milligan says that, you know, my mom could find a, clown, a cloud in every silver lining, but I'm the optimist and I'm going to see this as opportunity knocking. Uh, and the kitchen brother in that scene is just sniffing Simone, just being weird. Uh, and Milligan <laughs> says, like, if you want to be treated seriously, I need you to be a serious person. You know, yeah, yeah, that's a great line. Have that's a good. beer, uh, do a line, uh, get, you know, bust a nut or whatever he says. Like, you know, blow your load, I think he says. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I need you. He, he's intense. I, this is the, this is peak Milligan to me. Like, this was yeah. the best scene because, I think to a certain, on a certain level, he dispenses with a lot of the talk and he dispenses with the pillow talk and the Mike Milligan, like, Oh, isn't this great in this day and age that three people can be together and do this? He's not monologuing and he's not really doing this. He's being pretty straightforward with Simone in this scene. And I really am a big fan. Even though he's talking about his mom, he gets right to the point. Uh, and this is peak Milligan. He sees opportunity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, have you guys ever had your mother uh, make you eat in the dark? Yeah, of course. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> I thought this was a great look, though, into his character. I mean, really giving us some 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 real deep stuff about him that was that I thought was really fascinating to kind of really make us understand where he's coming from and why he has the attitude and the way he handles things, the way he does things. I think it was really kind of sum up in just this little part of this scene right here which was great and uh i, I loved it it was fantastic yeah so. i thought for sure simone was a goner because both charlie and simone left the gerhardt compound at the exact same time uh charlie left with vernon uh, to, to go on the hit and simone left to quote unquote run an errand to go see milligan and i thought oh this is going to be the ironic thing about this war they took everybody out but the next generation of gerhardt's are both going to die in separate scenes and the fact that yeah. neither of them died was interesting to me because i I think both of them are playing with fire, uh, especially Simone with Mike Milligan. And if you play with fire, you ultimately do get burned. So I think it will be Unless you're Khaleesi. Unless you're Khaleesi. When I, and I don't see any signs uh, that Simone is in any way a Targaryen. Do you have any? Josh, can you write that up? Can you give me the, uh, the clues that we've seen in Fargo that Simone is a Targaryen? What is Dodd's wife's name? D plus what equals S? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not <laughs> sure. Yeah, but she <laughs> might be a, a secret Targaryen. We have no proof that she isn't. So, yeah, anyway, I thought both of them were dead for sure. Um, and I think that they, it doesn't bode well for either of them that, you know, their little mix-up, them playing adult, if you will, uh, has put them both in, in uh, directly in harm's way. It hurt Charlie, clearly, uh, in a brush with death. And I don't think Simone knows truly who she's uh, – 
who she's sleeping with. She's truly sleeping with the enemy, uh, but she's sleeping with somebody who has designs on a lot bigger things that don't include her. Uh, and I think that that's uh, fascinating to watch play out. Yeah, well, we saw at the, the start of the episode, it began with the destruction of a certain aspect of the Casey Mafia. Uh, and we, we are concluding the podcast, if not the episode ending this way, but we're concluding the podcast with talking about Mike Milligan kind of stepping up in, you know, seeing opportunity and rising to the occasion. What does this storyline look like without Joe Bula, with that head literally cleaved, and Mike Milligan rising up and taking his place? Somebody who we've kind of described as an Anton Chigurh type from No Country for Old Men. What does it look like with this guy in a leadership position? Yeah, I think that's a great tease for the, the second half of the season here, possibly. I think, you know, we've been wondering, like, because we really haven't seen the full bad side of, of Mike yet. And I think it's going to, things are going to get real nasty now. I think we're going to see, we're going to see a pretty vicious uh, Mike come out. Uh, I think is what we're going to be coming down the road, which is really enough, exciting. Enough, enough smooth talk. Time for some uh, smooth action and smooth hair. Well, and if, yeah, if you remember the show, you know, season one took a really long time jump. It's possible Milligan and, and Kitchen uh, Bro will retreat back to uh, Kansas City and get some further orders and maybe sit on this for a little while and then come back a little bit later. I mean, I think for the for the time being, it seems clear that the Gerhards are going to be really coming after Ed specifically, um, especially now that, they, that Ed has taken out one of theirs uh, and almost killed Charlie. So I can see where Ed is really in, in direct jeopardy, but it seems like they feel like maybe the beef is a little bit squashed. Uh, they, they think that Kansas City is going to come back at them, but we don't know if anyone's around. Milligan's really the only one left with the Kitchen Brothers. So I think that we could see them going back, and Milligan's not going to forget that thumbs up he got uh, from the from the Gerhardt clan. Uh-huh. And I think sure. that, I think that he's going to be sitting <laughs> so on that. It's going to be sitting on that one for a while, uh, and I think he could come back and revisit this war uh, a little bit later. Uh, I don't know that it will directly continue. I think either way could work. But I think we're, we're, we're talking about a show where we could take some time, see Milligan go back to Kansas City, come back, and let's do this my way. Not Joe yeah. Bulo's way that I disagreed with and that we talked about throughout the first half of the season. That clearly didn't work. Let me go regroup in Kansas City, bring some of my uh, headcrackers back here, and we'll see how this plays out. Mm, I love headcrackers. Those are my favorite kind of crackers. Delicious. <laughs> Absolutely. Taste. Yeah. Uh, all right. I think that, I think that does. I think we hit all the major plot points from this episode. A lot to unpack. As Jeremiah said at the top of this thing, I do agree. Best episode of the season so far. Yep. Uh, action packed, really dramatic, moving a lot of pieces forward on the board. Uh, really curious to see how things shake out. Tension is at an all time high in this season. Who knows where it goes? We'll find out next week. We'll be back next week. Follow these guys on Twitter. Antonio is at AC Mazzaro, two Z's, one R. Jeremiah's at J Panhorst. I'm at Round Howard. Hashtag, I think it's got to be Alien Talk. That was really great. That made me happy. What do you guys think? That sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. Let's get some hashtag alien talk going in there. Uh, Subscribe to what we're doing here on the Fargo podcast, postshowrecaps.com slash Fargo iTunes. We will be back next week talking about episode six of Fargo season two. We are past the halfway mark as of next week. Um, What are we expecting? Quick, quick predictions, lightning round predictions. Jeremiah, what are we expecting in the back half of season two? Back as of season two, uh, I think we're all going to lead up to what happens in that massacre at Sioux Falls, which uh, I'm really excited to see what what that is going to entail. But I think we're going to continue to see, yeah, the battle between the Gerhouts and Kansas City come to an end, maybe. 
and uh, then, uh, like I said, find out what's going on with uh, Sioux Falls. Antonio, what do you predict? Yeah, I think uh, bad business for Ed and Peggy on the horizon. I don't know. We had speculated Sioux Falls would be her convention. I don't know how she skips town with uh, this kind of things that are happening right now. So that'll be fascinating. But I think that uh, I think we're going to see Milligan come to bear, and I think we're going to see more of a slow burn on this war. But I could well be wrong about that. My prediction, and just imagine my hair and my suit looking like the guy in the meme, aliens. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I've got. All right, guys, we'll be back next week with another episode of the Fargo Podcast. Thanks for listening. As always, leave your comments and feedback on PoshaRecaps.com. We'll be back soon. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye.